All right, today's scripture reading is from Judges, chapter 10, verses 6 through 16. So starting in verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me, And have served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us to the, please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. So continuing our series in the book of Judges, Judges in Our Own Eyes is the title of the series, and that is based upon the last verse in the book of Judges where it says, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So we're going to open with a question. As you look at our culture, as you look at the world that you live in, locally but also nationally and even globally, um, don't answer out loud. Think this through. What's the problem? What needs to change? What needs to change? Think that through. Um, each one of you right now, if you're, if you're thinking you're, you're, the, the wheels are spinning, you're, you're thinking you're assessing what you see in the world, what's wrong with the world, and you're, and you're thinking. But Leo Tolstoy, the author of War and Peace, a famous Russian writer, said this. He said, everybody thinks of changing humanity and nobody thinks of changing himself. I wonder how many of you, the first thing that you thought of when I asked that question was, how do I change? Probably not many. Probably not many. You probably looked to a certain group of people with a certain ideology that's different from yours who are destroying the culture as you see it. And there might be some truth to that, but we, that's the problem. That's the problem in the book of Judges. They keep looking to their enemies who are oppressing them, and they think their enemies are the problem. Their enemies are not the problem. They are the problem. They are the problem. And change is is what happens when a person repents. 
See, to repent is to be sorrowful for, for sin and then to change one's behavior and attitude. So what Tolstoy is talking about here, everybody thinks that humanity needs to repent, but nobody ever thinks of repenting personally. So we're going to look at repentance this morning, the process of repentance. Repentance can be an event, but it's also a process. The process, three things we're going to see, the wages of sin, that is the consequences of sin. We're going to take a look at the process of repentance as illustrated in chapter 10 here, verses 6 through 16. And then we're going to take a look at the mercy of God, how he responds, how he responds. So please open up your Bibles to chapter 10 in the book of Judges, and let's go to the Lord. Father, we come to you. We see the problems with the world, or we think we see the problems in the world, and so often we're blind to our own issues. Lord, would um, would you open our eyes? Would you bring conviction where conviction is needed? Would you bring comfort where comfort is needed? Uh, Lord, your word says that repentance is the gift of God and that your kindness leads us to repentance. And I pray, Father, that we would see your mercy, that we would see your kindness. And Lord, we also pray that you would use the preaching of your word, help me to preach and teach in such a way that Christ is exalted and he is honored this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first of all, the wages of sin. Let's take a look. We're in the same pattern. The people of Israel again again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. This is interesting. Not only they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, look at the list. And the gods of Syria, and the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and they did not serve him. There's not a God that they didn't love and didn't serve, other than, of course, the only one true God. They're basically giving themselves over to all of the gods of the surrounding neighbors. And it says, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. This is a repeated thing. This is not new. You see this every time we open up the book of Judges. It's the same, the same story, just the next generation. It's this, and they're getting worse. And they're getting worse. They're getting further and further away. And they crush and oppress the people of Israel that year. So God removes his protective hand over Israel. And their neighbors, of whom they worship their gods, they begin to oppress them. And it says they crush. They crush them. And then oppress them. All they were beyond the Jordan land of Amorites, which is in Gilead. The Ammonites crossed the Jordan and to fight against Judah and, the, and Benjamin and against the house of Israel so that they were severely, severely distressed. And the people cried out to the Lord saying, we've sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Okay, now we've, we've seen the consequences of sin, pain, suffering, given over to the enemies, sold into slavery. So that's the consequence. Now we're moving into the process of repentance. This is new. This is new. I want to take a look at what they said. We have sinned. They cry out to the Lord, but what do they say? We have sinned. This is the first time there's any acknowledgement of wrongdoing in the book of Judges. In chapter 3, in chapter 3, verse 9 and verse 15, two separate occasions separated by probably 40 years, it says that they were oppressed by the enemies and they cried out to the Lord, deliver us. There's no mention of wrongdoing. 
There's no mention of sin. They just want the pain to go away. Then again, in chapter 4, verse 3, you have the same thing, different judge. God, save us from our enemies. And God raises up a judge. And sa- but there's no acknowledgement. There was no acknowledgement of sin. There's no acknowledgement of their idolatry. And then in chapter 6 with Gideon, they cry out to the Lord. But before God raises up a judge, he sends a prophet. And the prophet points out, the reason you're in the predicament that you're in is because you have forsaken the Lord and you are worshiping other gods. So God does not send a judge initially. He sends a prophet who preaches a sermon. Why? Because they're not getting it. Each successive generation thinks the problem is the other people. And they're not understanding that the reason they keep falling into this pattern of pain is because they keep falling into a pattern of idolatry. And now they're in that same place, but there's something different. Now they don't cry out, Lord, save us, at least not initially. They lead with, we've sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. They actually diagnose the problem themselves without being told. They get it now, at least cognitively, intellectually. Now, There are many people in this room, many people in the world who are in pain because of their own decisions. Would you agree with that? Now, many of you are in pain because of your own decisions, or at least they contributed to it, and you are totally aware of that. Some of you are totally unaware of it, and you tend to look at everybody else as being the source of your problems, but you don't necessarily see the person in the mirror as as contributing to the problems. So that's a good step to understand that I contribute to my problems. But we're not home yet. We're not home yet, and they're not home yet. They've acknowledged, they've acknowledged the problem, but what's the solution? Now let's take a look. The process of repentance. And the Lord said to the people, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, the Ammonites, the the Amorites, the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? The Sidians also, and the Amalekites and the Monites oppressed you. You cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and uh, served other gods. Therefore, I won't save you anymore. It's like the boy who cried wolf. I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to rescue you. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) Just on cue. No, that's not what they said. God says, I'm not going to rescue you. And they didn't say no problem. You can't work that into a sermon on purpose. It just happens. So he says, well, go, go cry out to the gods that you, of whom you've chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. You want to worship the gods of the Amorites? You want to worship Baal? You want to worship Ashtoreth? You're in trouble? Cry out to those gods. I'm done. I'm done. Now what's going on here? This is the first time that they have confessed their sin, and God's like, I'm not buying the whole confession of sin thing here. You're not going to play me like a cheap fiddle. Okay, this is not the way it works. Come crying to me and tell me how sinful you are. I know you. I know you. Go cry to your gods, because I clearly am not your God. Right? So, how do they respond? Well, So far, it looks like they're repenting. But what is repentance? 
What is repentance? Is confession of sin and an acknowledgement of guilt repentance? It's a good move in that direction, but in and of itself is not repentance. Is feeling sorry for your sin repentance? It's part of repentance, but what are you sorry for? Paul, the apostle, lays this out in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is important that we take a look at this because what they're going through is the process of repentance, and they're going to get there. They're going to get there. But let's take a deeper look at what repentance actually is and what it isn't. Because you cannot be a Christian apart from repentance. It's, it's not possible. Furthermore, you can't grow as a Christian without repentant, repenting on a regular basis. Some of you are like, well, I repented when I became a Christian. If you haven't repented in the last week, you're not following Jesus of something. It's not possible to follow Jesus and not repent continually. It just isn't. So what is it? What is it? Let's take a look. Paul puts it this way. He's writing the church in Corinth, and he had sent them a letter which was really, really harsh and told them that there's some individuals that need to repent. And there was some discipline involved. So he's hearing about this repentance, and here's, here's what he says. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Now I want you to notice what Paul is doing. He's contrasting He's contrasting a godly sorrow which leads to repentance and a worldly sorrow which is just self-pity, which leads to death. So far in the book of Judges, at this point, we're not sure which kind of sorrow Israel has. We know they feel sorry for their sin, but let's take a look at the different kinds. And I I want you to, we're going to step back, we're going to pull our eyes away from Judges, and I want you to think about yourself. Not your spouse or your kids or the people you work with or those people who need to change, but you. Think of yourself. Worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow. When a person has worldly sorrow, their chief desire is happiness. Now, is there anything wrong with wanting to be happy? No, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy, but it's the primary driving desire. That's the number one thing. I just want to be happy. Consequently, for me to be happy, I need the pain to go away. I need the pain to go away. The sorrow in this case is not due to the sin or the poor attitude The sorrow is due to the fact that it has brought me pain and discomfort. That's what the problem is in this person's eyes. God's role, as we see it when we we have worldly sorrow, is the fixer. 
So Israel cries out to God again and again and again. Or this is the foxhole Christian that is, is in the battle and the bullets are flying and they're in the foxhole and they ask God to get them out of this jam. Get them out of this jam. So they see God's role as the fixer. Our role in this case is hoop jumpers. Is there a word I have to say? Is there a prayer I have to pray? Is there a support group I have to attend? You, you get the, you see, oh, this is just hoop jumping. Tell me what to do so the pain will go away. It looks like religion because it is. That's what most religion is. It's not desiring a relationship with the one true holy God who's given our life for, uh, for his life for us. Rather, it's a, okay, you're the fixer. God, what buttons do I need to push? Is there something I need to say? Do I need to cry? If I show you that I'm really, 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 really sorrowful, will that make you take the pain away? Do I need to go to a support group? Do I need to say a certain prayer? Do I need to confess my sins to other people? And if so, how much of my sin do I need to confess? It's basically, what do I need to do to cause you to fix my problem? The problem with that is they are the problem. And they're not asking to be fixed. They're asking for the problem to go away. I've had this conversation numerous times with various people, both male and female, over the years. And it goes something like this. Now, this is a conversation from the speaking to a husband. Difficult marriage. Very painful. Going through Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, who died and gave himself for her, washing her with water, making her holy, exhorting these individuals. These individuals, this is what God has called you to. Love your spouse. And here's the quote. Brooks, I did that. It doesn't work. Oh, what doesn't work? She won't respect me. Oh, so th- you, see what, you see what's going on? This is hoop jumping. Just going to jump through the hoops. I'm going to do what the Bible says so that my wife will respect me. Not because it honors the Lord. This is all about obedience, not for the sake of honoring Jesus, but obedience so I can have a happy wife, happy life. That is idolatry. Now, most of you probably wouldn't articulate that verbally to someone else but you think it. If you have thought that obedient to God is not worth it because it does not make your life happy, you have experienced worldly sorrow. By the way, and all of us fit that bill at times. At times. That's worldly sorrow. God's response? Let your God save you. I'm clearly not the God you're worshiping. How about you cry out to the gods that you are worshiping and let them save you? And they can't save. They don't have the ability to save. 
Idolatry always promises more than it will deliver and takes more than it says it's going to take. It just makes things worse. It makes things worse. So that's worldly sorrow. Let's take a look at godly sorrow. The chief desire, by the way, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy, not coming down on happiness. Okay? But the chief desire when godly sorrow, our desires are holiness. By the way, the only true way to be happy is to be holy. And to be holy means to, to live in the purposes for which God has called you. It means to be set apart. It means to be walking with Jesus. So our chief desire is holiness. Our chief desire with holiness. Our role, our role then with godly sorrow, that, that desire, we recognize we're not holy. And we recognize that our sin, yes, it's brought us pain, but it's also brought reproach to the name of Christ. And that's what grieves us. And that's what grieves us. And so we cry out to God and we repent. Yes, we feel bad for the pain that the sin has brought us, but we feel more pain that we have sinned against a holy and a righteous God and against those that God has brought into our lives. Yes, we feel pain because of our misery, but we feel more pain because of the reproach we've brought to the name of Christ. So God's response to that repentance is deliverance. He doesn't say, we'll cry out to your other guides because it's clear that he is your God and he lives to intercede. Let's take a look back to the text. And the people of Israel said, remember, so the last verse we looked at in verse 14, he says, go cry out to the gods that you worship. You clearly don't worship with me. So, so what do they say? They double down. We've sinned. Do to, you, do to us whatever seems good to you. Okay, now, that's significant. That's significant because this person, this group of people, they are ready to accept the consequences for their sin. But look at what they say. Only deliver us anyway. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to be delivered. That's not, that's not a problem. They're, but they've crossed a threshold now to godly sorrow. They've crossed a threshold where they recognize that their sin is what got them into this, and they recognize that they deserve nothing from God. He says, do to, you, do to us whatever seems good to you. You're good, you're righteous, um, but please deliver us anyway. Please deliver us anyway. Now, do we know that they've repented yet? We don't. This is all verbal. This is all verbal. How do you know when a person is repentant, repented? The only way you can tell if a person was repented is not how much they cry, not how sorry they feel. The only way you can tell if a person is genuinely repented, repented is it, do they change? Let's take a look at the, verse 16. So, so they put away foreign gods from among them and they serve the Lord. And they serve the Lord. I'm going to stop right there. They put away foreign gods. They repented of their idolatry and they began to serve the Lord. Now notice this is before God has said, yes, I will deliver you. They don't know whether God is going to deliver them. That's significant. That's significant. They are not, they don't know. As far as they're concerned, God has said, no, no, I am not going to play your games. You can jump through all the hoops you want, pretend that you're worshiping me, tell me you're sorry, just go pray to Baal. Lord, do whatever you seems fit, but deliver us anyway. Then they repent, 
and then begin to serve him. There's no promise yet that God is going to do anything on their behalf. But they have begun worshiping and serving him, and they have turned away from their idols. This is genuine repentance. This is genuine repentance. And what's God's response? Uh, It's impossible for me to... You've already seen the text. You've seen it. But let me ask it this way. If I told you that in today's text, God became impatient with something, what would you assume that something is? God is impatient with sin. God is impatient with idolatry. That's not what the text says. What does the text say? He became impatient over their misery. How many of you have heard this completely bogus assertion? The God of the Old Testament is angry and judgmental. The God of the New Testament in Jesus is loving and merciful. Has anybody ever heard heard that? That is complete and utter hogwash. God is the same yesterday as he is today. Look at his disposition towards these rebellious, sinful people. What is he impatient with? When you think of somebody, a dad who's impatient, he's ready to backhand you, right? He's impatient. Who, who's going to get the backhand or what? What is, this, what is the object of his impatience? What's the text say? Their misery. That's what his guts churn over is the state of their misery. God's mercy is welling up, but it cannot be received or experienced apart from repentance. This is important. What causes God's mercy? Not our repentance. His mercy, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God doesn't see Brooks repent and that causes him to be merciful because before he sees my repentance, he wasn't merciful. That's not how it works. No, God is continuously merciful all the time. His heart aches for the suffering of his people due to their sin or due to no fault of their own. That is his nature, to be compassionate. However... The repentance, the role of repentance is not to bring about God's mercy, but it is to receive God's mercy. You cannot receive that which is naturally something that God is apart from repentance. And we see in verse 17 through the rest of this particular story, the raising up of Jepheth and another one of Israel's judges who we won't get to this morning but we see this process of deliverance again. But this is significant because this is the one place, the first place, honestly, it's the first and last in the book of Judges where you actually see them repent, turn from their idols and worship God. They put away their idols. God became impatient. Literal translation His soul was short because of their misery. His soul was short because of their misery. Repentance does not cause God to be merciful. God is his own cause. Repentance and faith is the means by which we receive that which God freely gives. 
So our response, how to respond. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And here we are in 2023 and we live in a democratic republic for the present and we don't have a king spiritually and everybody basically does what's right in their own eyes. We live in a world of moral relativism and the church seems to be a little different. The church seems to be a little different from our neighbors. We talk a good game, but we behave the same way that our neighbors behave that don't know Jesus. So, and yet God grows impatient with our suffering, which oftentimes is brought on by our own sin. And the problem is, in those days, Israel had no king. Now, we're not going to study First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and all the way through the Old Testament, but they get a king, but that's not the king that they're talking about. Those kings don't lead to national revival. Those kings don't lead to, to national repentance. Those kings don't lead to personal or corporate holiness. But there is a king that did come, and he established a kingdom, and we're going to study that kingdom in Mark this fall. And the first sermon that Jesus preached, the first words that Jesus preached publicly are right there in verse 14 and 15 of John cha- or Mark chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. It means it's here, it's now. Jesus is not talking about a future, a future life with him eternally in heaven. He's saying, no, no, no. Yes, that, but it starts now. It starts now. And, and then he tells them, he gives them some instructions. What's the instructions? What's the text say? Repent and believe the gospel. Do you know that it's not possible to believe the gospel apart from repentance? It's not possible. It's not possible to enter into a relationship with God apart from coming to the end of yourselves and recognizing that what Paul said in in, in Romans, that the wages of sin is death and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person here, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be obnoxious. I just want to tell you the truth. Every single one of us is by nature and choice a full-blown idolater. That means that we lift other things up which are not God and we make them our gods. We make them the most important thing. The pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of comfort, the pursuit of of people's approval. How do you know you're an idolater? Well, let me ask you the question. Do you sin? Why do you sin? Because there's something other than God which you are primarily following. That's how you know. That's how you know you're a sinner. That's how you know you're an idolater. We're not different than these people in the book of Judges. And no, the liberals are not our problem. And no, the right-wing conspirators are not our problem. There is no political solution for this. None. 
There is only a spiritual solution, and it's called revival. But there's a prerequisite for revival. That prerequisite for revival is personal and corporate repentance. It's to recognize that what we deserve is the wrath of God. But what is welling up within him, what he is impatient with, is our suffering. And what he wants to do, what he wants to do, what he longs to do, is pour out his loving kindness and mercy on us. But that is long in coming because we think someone else is the problem. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's the gospel. Jesus knows who the problem is. We're the problem. But what does he come to do? He comes to receive the sin, our sin, upon himself and makes it his problem. And the wrath of God, which has pent up, which has been held back for thousands of years, is unleashed and poured out, not on us, but on the person of Jesus Christ, his own son. And he receives all of that wrath so that we might receive all of his love. And it is his loving kindness which leads us to repentance, not the fear of punishment. This is Romans chapter 12, chapter 2, verse 4. That's what leads us to repentance is the knowledge that he's received all that wrath, that he's given all his love. But you can't receive that love, experience that love, experience that mercy until you repent and believe the gospel. So believe the gospel. Stop being like Adam and Eve in saying, it's the woman you put in the garden. It's those It's the husband that you put in the garden. It's the serpent that you put in the garden. It's those people. It's that group. And just own what you can own and confess it and recognize that God is not obligated to do anything for our pain, but he longs to. That's how you enter into a relationship with Christ. It's by grace, through faith, that we've been saved. It's not by works so that no one can boast. You don't repent to get God to do stuff. You repent so that you can have a relationship with Christ. And by the way, it doesn't end when you enter a relationship with Christ. John Calvin says that we, our hearts are idol factories and all of life is Repentance. All of life is repentance. You'd never arrive. I never arrive. There is, I'm constantly taking stock and seeing attitudes which are wrong in my heart, which leads to actions which harm others and don't bring glory to God. And so what do I have to do? I have to repent of that. First John chapter 1, verse 8. If anybody says they're without sin, the truth of God is not in them. And they deceive themselves. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. And he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, John says, the reason I'm writing these things to you is so that you won't sin. But if you do, if you do sin, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ 
who is the propitiation for your sins. What is that word propitiation? We don't, we don't use that. It means that he has received the wrath of God and the wrath of God is satisfied and now all that you have to receive from him is mercy. So you can come boldly to the throne. With what? Your sin. You don't need to fear. You don't need to hide in the garden. You don't need to blame shift. You just need to say, yep, I've realized that I'm walking in sin again. I've realized that I'm worshiping the God of the Sidonites, the Amorites, and every other termite in the area. I recognize that my heart is not totally different from my neighbors who doesn't know you, except that I know you. And I find myself worshiping the same things that they worship. Lord, I confess this to you. Wash me, purify me, change my heart. And show me how to live that I might honor and glorify you. And if I need more discipline, then bring more discipline. Because my primary desire is for me to be holy and you to be honored. And I'm pretty sure that somewhere in that, in that process, my happiness will probably show up too. That's what repentance looks like. And apart from the gospel, it's not even possible. If you would like to be prayed for, you, like Israel, are suffering various calamities, some of them physical, some of them spiritual. Regardless of the source of your pain, if you would like to be prayed for or over, we would love to pray with you up front. I want to encourage you, um, take your next step in following Jesus. Let us know if you've received Christ today, let us know if you desire to follow Christ, but you have questions. Let us know. You can always go to graceb3.org backslash next to find out what your next steps in following Jesus. Following Jesus is not a static thing. It's not, yeah, I started, I did that when I was 10. Or I did that when I was 30. It's a daily thing. So let us know how we can help you in your next steps. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you that it is your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, thank you, Lord, that you have given your son. Lord, would you be merciful to us? We pray that you would deliver us from our sin. We pray that you would show us what our sin is so that we might confess it to you. I pray for those people who have yet to receive you as their Savior. Lord, today, may today be the day they receive your grace and cry out to you and ask you to deliver them from themselves. And Lord, I pray for us as a people that we would be made holy. Lord, you promise in your word that you are, that you are our Savior and you are the Savior of the church and that you wash us with water and wash us with the word to make us holy. Father, make your bride holy. Lord, we don't want to be people who have uh, worldly sorrow only, but godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, which leads to righteousness. Not a work that we do, but a work that you do in and through us. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Go in grace. We'll see you next week.